You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week 22nd of October to the 26th of October. Uh, Sarah was away on Friday, so Sam filled in for us. So thanks for that, Sam. No worries, guys. Anytime. Uh, highlights of this week included, we got to chat to Chloe Hooper about her book, The Arsonist, A Mind on Fire. Um, I talked about the wine tasting I did on my holidays and... Uh, very fittingly, then we discussed hangover cures. Yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> it was just a bit of a theme through <laughs> happening. Uh, and then we talked to Ben Francis-Celli from Museums Victoria about how whales evolved from furry Labradors. Yeah, or or, something almost. Like something, yeah. Anyway, something along those lines. And Nat Harris was our Friday funny book. She made us play a game. And we talked to Dr. Julie Stone, a child psychiatrist, about the state of the children left on Nauru. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You're listening to Breakfasters. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, before we went on holidays... I did my first aid certificate. Yes. Remember that? Uh, yes. yes. How you can gave I us a little quiz yeah. on it. Yeah. Well, you, you quizzed me on it. You yes. te- tested my knowledge. Yep. The old Dr. ABC. The doctor. Doctors. Doctors. ABC. D. D. Yep. For dead. No, for defibrillator. <laughs> D for dead. Uh, put to the test while I was on holidays. Oh, no. No. Mm. On who? Kath. On Kath, yeah. Oh. So, first day, because we, we went to the. Barossa Valley for a few days um, and uh, drank some lovely wine, ate some nice food. Yum, and, yum. Uh, so the first day I uh, was there, though, because um, we got in quite late and so we just stopped at a supermarket and got some stuff for dinner and Kath was preparing dinner and went, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a bad one and sliced through a finger. Oh, no. A big cut on a finger and I was like, here we go. <laughs> It's my time to shine. <laughs> Danger. Everyone step away from Kath. <laughs> Everyone did. But thankfully, I, we had friends that came and stayed with us. From Ad- I've got friends that live in Adelaide. Uh, and one of them is a paramedic and the other one um, trains people in first aid. So they were... So it wasn't really your time to shine, was it? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't tell them to step was, out of the way. Uh, I've got this. <laughs> I checked for the danger and I got the knife out of the way and then and then I just had to stand back and <laughs> let them take over. But um, did she was she panicked or was she calm and no, controlled? Yeah, she was calm. She's in because Kath's yeah. you know trying to be She's a nurse. She's calm as well. about everything. Uh, yeah, she is. Isn't she? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I feel it'd be more of a test if you had someone who was panicking or freaking out or. Didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And the blood she, was squirting. Yeah. And they were maybe waving the knife around. Then you and the some, blood. Then you have some danger to deal then with. Then I would. But you know what I forgot to do is, um, yeah, that's the other thing I forgot when you tested me, is you have to ask for consent to help. Really? Mm. No. What if they have. What if they can't give consent? Yeah, they're unconscious. Well, you have to assume that they would give consent then. Oh. But if you've, if you've just cut your finger. Oh, yeah, then you probably just won't be left alone, don't you? Yeah, you might. might just hold, be holding it yourself yeah, yeah. and think I've got That's this. True. You have to come up and say, hello, my no, name's Geraldine. I'm, I'm, I'm a trained first aider. <laughs> Can I help you? There you go. Can you tell Jeff how many uh, crates of wine you sent home from the Barossa Valley? Oh, I don't <laughs> I don't remember. Do you, <laughs> three or four crates. Whole yeah. crates of wine sent no, home. how many did shipped it home? 
<laughs> yeah, well, we There's were, a few ta- boxes. We were, we're talking sit- about this before. That. I reckon that that cellar door thing, they've got quite the racket going there because you come in and they give you all the tastings mm-hmm. and, you know, you're supposed to spit it out but no one ever does. Oh, I did. I'd spat it out. There was... Because obviously, because Kath and I were, um, we had a high car, so we would ha- would take oh, it in yeah, terms right. of who was driving. So there was one day that I drove. So you had to spit. Had to spit. It's all right. No but problem. I'm, I'm but have you shipped yourself crates? I mean, apparently they offer you free delivery. Well, I'm just saying. Yeah, some places it's free shipping, so you just. You've sampled all the wines and they all taste great and the guy's telling you, note the the bouquet of cherries in this. Oh, yeah, there's some cherries. And then you say, yep, I'll have that one, that one. I know exactly what it's like. Yeah, that's what I did. That's exactly what I did. Without then, the hint of bouquet of cherries, <laughs> I just went, yeah, that tastes great. Let's get a box of that. So we had to we had to stop going to tastings by the end. I was like, I can't afford, we can't afford this anymore. Because I, I couldn't go into a tasting and not buy wine. Could it always feels a bit rude. No. <laughs> Yeah. Does it? Well, they're giving you all the stuff. and I do not feel like it. That's the greatest thing about those things. You just get as much as you can for free. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the nibblies that they offer at the... But also... (laughs) See you later. It's like, imagine, you know, going to the... You know when they're um, handing out, like, um, those snack things at the supermarket? Yes. Yeah. Imagine standing there talking to them for an hour, eating all their snacks that they've got on offer. Yeah. And then walking away. That's what you're paying for because you pay for the tastings. Do you pay? No. Sometimes you do. You don't always. Oh, okay. I've only ever paid for them. Yeah. It's not much. But that, that's because they introduced that, I think, because there were so many looky-loos who were just yeah. <laughs> I tell you, I, I, the place I do get stress is at markets, so at farmer's markets, they often have their produce cut up and they say, you know, do you want a piece of brownie? And I have some, but as you're tasting it, they inevitably start doing the sale to you. And I have a lot of trouble really? going, yeah, I have a lot of trouble going, so uh, why would it that, be different for the wine? Because, like, that's the only reason people... Because you paid five bucks because the to wine, have a taste. Because wineries are, you know, it's like it's a whole business. Everyone's there tasting the wine. That's their thing. Whereas in a market, it's just one person behind the stall. They've just got a few brownies to make their living and you kind of feel sad. I think they've got other stuff going on <laughs> besides their brownies. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's more of a... And you go, oh, that is delicious. And then they say, so do you want some? And it's like... It's not that delicious. No. <laughs> no, delicious enough to have for free. Not delicious enough to pay $5. Exactly. Um, I went to a distillery tasting when I was on Norfolk Island. and um, What are they distilling there? They had all these liqueurs sort of... Oh, they were so good. There was a... a a uh, rum with had that had coffee flavored thing. Oh, yeah! Did you ship that home? I did ship some of that home. But yes. the, but it's a, it's difficult with it still because you don't spit the the spirits no. and the spirits are quite strong. Oh, don't you? Well, I don't. I don't think you do, do? You? Oh no, don't <laughs> do what you want. No, I wouldn't. Yeah, well, so that you know, they had a six or seven different ones, and they just give you a little bit of it. But yeah. by the end, it. You know. Do you know what I learnt? Because we went to a gin distillery while we were there as well. You know what I learnt? When you're tasting gin, you've got to get all the air out of your mouth. What do you mean? Like, oh. yeah, breathe out. And then Why? What's the air doing to the gin? It's make, making it taste. Huh. Um, you Jeez. know when you get that really, um, what's the word, you know, the yucky taste that gin has sometimes, like that metallic kind of. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's from oh, having. Oh, you didn't have enough of a huff and a puff before you yeah, yeah, just sip. Get it all that, and then yeah, get that it in your might, mouth. That um, might mm. seem a little bit strange if people didn't know what it was you were doing. You get your cup of gin, and before you have a sip, you start. 
yeah. sort of working your way up to yes. it. Yes. That might seem quite strange. No, not, if, not if you're in the know. <laughs> you're like, oh, I know what you're doing there. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're tuned to Breakfast is here on Triple R. Ben Francicelli is a paleontologist from Museums of Victoria. He's joining us now to talk about new research about the evolution of whales. I should also mention Dr. Jen is away, but she'll be back soon. But welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. What do we know about where whales came from? Well, whales are the biggest animals that have ever existed. They've always fascinated me for that reason. And paleontology is basically asking that uh, critical question, how did they get so big and why by utilising the fossil record? Because I want your listeners to imagine just how big these whales are. Now, remember the first time you guys ever saw an elephant? It was yes. awe-inspiring, right? Yes. You go up to the zoo, you go up to the wooden fence at the Melbourne Zoo and you see this gigantic animal for the first time and you think to yourself, wow, it's huge. <laughs> what I want you to do is stack another 29 of these ah. elephants on top of each other. They equate to the weight of just one blue whale. That's Have you ever seen a blue whale? I personally haven't seen a blue whale. I've seen humpbacks before. And I've seen lots of dead whales in terms of their skulls in the fossil record mm. before. So plenty of things so, like that. Uh, a whale is 29 elephants standing on top of each other. In terms of weight, yeah. And they're also the length of a basketball court in terms of uh, size. It's, 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 I don't think my brain can comprehend that. It always seems kind of counterintuitive to me because when you're a kid, you know, you look at dinosaurs and how big they are and you always sort of assume, you always sort of assume that the dinosaurs were far bigger than anything that's alive today. Why is it then that that whales, creatures that are still alive, are bigger than dinosaurs? Well, the dinosaurs were huge. They were absolutely massive for the time that they were around. You have the sauropods, the long-necked dinosaurs. They were getting to about 30 metres in length, but they were only about half the weight. Um, And the reason that whales are getting so big is because of the surplus food supply. Now, when it comes to the baleen whales, these are the animals that have got the large keratinous racks on top of their mouth that they use to filter out gigantic quantities of water. They eat a lot of food, but their food is basically krill, tiny little prawns that swim freely in the ocean. Uh, And there's one species that the blue whale tends to eat a lot of called Euphasia superba. Their entire life cycle lasts about 72 hours. So in a very short amount of time, you can eat millions without affecting an entire group of that creature. Oh, wow. And uh, when it comes to the evolution of them, there are some absolutely bizarre uh, varieties. So if you were to travel back 50 million years ago into the past, into the Indo-Pakistan region, you'd be face-to-face with a creature called Pachycetus. And quite surprisingly, it had four legs it walked on land and it looked nothing like the whales that are immediately in the ocean today. What huh? you, like a big lizard type thing? Uh, imagine it? something that looked like a really cute Labrador, I guess. <gasps> a really? Labrador with yeah. fur? With fur, yeah. What? How big was it? Um, medium-sized dog. It really would have been the size of a Labrador. That's what, a whales, that's what whales were. Yeah. That's so there. how do we know the connection between that and a whale? Um, there are a number of transitional fossils that we find in the fossil record. And it's actually a really good question because when it was first posited uh, by Charles Darwin in 1859, there were a lot of proponents against it. They were like, no, this can't is crazy possibly, talk. this is a fish. You know, how could it, it lives in the ocean. How could it possibly be anything other than, than a fish? But it's a mammal. It suckles its young with milk. It's warm blooded. We know that its origin probably would have had to have come from land. And it was only until about the 1980s that we started finding sufficient fossil evidence to give us credence to this theory. So what? So when you say what kind of fossil evidence, you haven't found 
say the skeleton of this dog creature? Oh, we have, yes. Oh, Yes, oh, it's, wow. so it's actually a, called oh, Pacasius. I, I thought you were just going to say you, <laughs> you just make it up. No, I just thought you were going to say you found like a little bit of bacteria that made you. Think, that's a, that's incredible. Yeah, so, so they found that, and they found a number of transitional types. And the next one along in the series is called Ambulocetus. It basically looks like an otter mixed with a crocodile mixed with a. Uh, a whale. It's absolutely bizarre and was probably an ambush hunter that lived in Indo-Pakistan about 48 million years ago. So how long between Labrador and that thing? Uh, So that thing, only a couple of million years. And the transition from whales living on land to them actually going into the water is incredibly quick, geologically speaking. Now, to your viewers listening, seven to eight million years may seem like a really long time, but in terms of paleontology, it's the blink of an eye. It's absolutely nothing. Do and we know why they went into the water? Just Was it just for food? Basically food. Yeah, right. There was a glut in the late Eocene oceans that they decided to go back into and just engorge themselves on. Tell us about the um, killer sperm whale. Uh, yes, I was talking about this before. Uh, so uh, recently, Museums Victoria has led a number of expeditions down uh, the surf coast and a number of other areas along Port Phillip Bay, specifically uh, to a place called Bo Morris. Um, now, back in 2016, we got our first whiff of these killer sperm whales, and I will describe them in detail in just a moment, when uh, a local was walking along the beach in Bo Morris and he kind of stumbled across something. And when he first looked at it, he thought it was a World War II artillery shell. He kind of freaked out, understandably. Well, you would, yeah. (laughs) Sure enough, he realised it wasn't a World War II relic. He picked it up and it turned out to be the biggest tooth that had ever been found in Australasia. (gasps) Okay, a beast. We're talking the size of a 1.25 litre Coke bottle. Oh. That's just one. Wow. So these killer sperm whales, the, the holotype or the animal that it's first known from actually comes from the middle of a Peruvian desert that was described in 2012. They called it Leviathan, the Hebrew name for Leviathan. And this was a 17 and a half metre long whale, a sperm whale known as a killer sperm whale that ate other baleen whales when huh. it was alive. It oh. is. What we see in Melbourne is a significantly younger form, probably only between five to six million years old, and it represents the biggest predator-prey relationship the world has ever seen. So no relation, because killer whales are a whole other Yes, so killer whales are from the oceanic dolphin variety. So, And they're the top predator in the ocean, apart from our super predator status, uh, (laughs) because we're humans and we eat everything. Um, Yeah, so orcas are very different from what these killer sperm whales would have been doing. Whereas you have a pod of orcas probably trying to take down a number of these baleen whales. You know, they deliberately try to drown them. Um, You would have just had one kill a sperm whale eating one other baleen whale. Oh, so shark-like. Gosh. So though the, their predator-prey relationship must have been kind of epic. Then. Uh, These imagine, huge sort of battles yeah. between... Imagine 50 metric tons uh, versing another 50 metric tons, blood gushing from everywhere. They would have used their gigantic teeth to incapacitate their prey. They would have had 40 of those gigantic studded teeth in their jaw and their skull was the size of a small car. I think you just. Happened I, I feel like this is the next Jurassic Park waiting to happen. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but uh, like we've still got the the whales that it would eat. So mm. I guess at the end, who came out on top? <laughs> the killer sperm whales did not come out on top. There you unfortunately, go. no. Mm. Um, so the sperm whales you see today, they're very, very different uh, than the sperm whales that lived some five to six million years ago. I mean, when you look at the locality of Beaumaris, which is only like a twenty to thirty minute drive outside of Melbourne, you have about four different groups of sperm whales. Whereas today, you've only got three different species around the world. 
and that's it. So and they all eat squid. That's all they really do. Why, why do they lose their teeth? Uh, it's a really good question. They lost the enamel on their teeth to cope with that kind of a diet. Um, but in terms of why they died out, the killer sperm whales, it's not really known. Mm. They were also coinciding with another gigantic predator at the time, the megalodon. Mm. And the gigantic shark. And I mean, it really was massive. You've got to think about a shark the size of a humpback whale. That's just how big it was. And its mouth was so big, it could swallow you whole. Oh, you just terrifying. float in and not realise. Exactly. <laughs> Jesus. And the, the theory for why that animal died out is actually because of the appearance of the orcas and a lot of climate change as well. Oh, huh. We don't want to be swimming around in the ocean back in those no, days. No, no. Quite often people think that they wouldn't be wanting to swimming around at the time of the dinosaurs. But I can tell you, five to six million years ago around Melbourne, it would have been terrifying. Oh, oh. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, good luck finding more of these um, Thanks, guys. bitey sharks. We've been talking to Ben Francisselli from Museums Victoria. Thank you so much. Anytime, guys. Thanks a lot. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to Breakfasters. Uh, this is the time uh, where we don't often call on our listeners for many things, uh, but today... Well, we sometimes call on them for food, but they never give it to us. I know. Today... No, we love them. We <laughs> are after your hangover cures because Jeff is in Struggle Town. Um, yeah, I reckon this is the most I've seen you struggle in a long time. Mm. Oh. But you yeah. seem to have... You've I've improved. perked up a little bit. Have you? <laughs> Just for those playing at home, Jeff is kind of resting his head into his his forehead into his hand and talking into the microphone like that. Well, yeah, and the slouch, that, the slouch that, is that six fifteen segment was was a, was, was hard work. Listen back to that. Jeff might have been drunk. I think no, he was drunk. He's you professional. Were, you were struggling. Struggling. So we sent you off to get get coffee at seven o'clock. Uh, and you decided, and we suggest, I suggested you should get some Vegemite on toast. Yes. And you decided, no, not doing that. Yep. Get some fruit toast instead. No, that wasn't quite what happened. I was just standing there, I was complaining to Mike, who we get our coffee from, mm-hmm. that I wasn't feeling very well and said, can you put something in the coffee to fix me up? Oh, and Jesus. <laughs> yeah, now, what did you think he was going to put in the coffee? I just extra made a conversation. I wasn't actually, actually suggesting yeah. he put something in the coffee. Oh, yeah. and, he said, and he said, why don't I give you the end of the, the, the fruit. fruit loaf? Because he's, apparently people don't like it. I love fruit I, loaf. No, the, the crusty oh, the crust, bit. Oh, oh, the end. It's always been my favourite bit of the loaf. Oh, well, there you go. Someone was just ringing and we missed it. Feel free, oh, to, free, to, feel oh, free to call us. Oh, yeah, call back. Well, you can send, send us your hangover cures uh, on text 04669810237. I'm not reading out the one that's just come through. Oh. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> oh, here's yeah. someone calling. I could Chocolate milk. I forgot about the um, fear that overcomes me when we do this live oh, to you don't know what's going to happen. No. Hello, you're on Triple R. Tell them to go for a run or a jog or some like exercise. Exercise, Jeff. Do yes. Straight away. I probably will do that. I'm just on the radio at the moment, so it's a bit hard. <laughs> oh, I think um, Jeff's run also... Run around the office. Run around the office. I think you should. He's having trouble wheeling his chair at the moment, so I don't know if he'll get out for a run. All right, thanks for your call, mate. See ya. Have a good one. See ya. Uh, hello, you're on Triple R. Have you got a solution for Jeff's hangover? 
Well, I've got something for his tummy. Oh. Everything. But um, I used to work in the Royal Arcade and there was that lolly shop where they made Royal Lollies. Yes. Oh. And if, that was back in my days as a butler. And if I was really hungover, the guys would give me a teaspoon of pure peppermint oil. Oh. It is amazing. Like, it just gets rid of that hangover gut straight away. That's oh. exactly what Jeff needs. I've never heard of know. this. Yeah, it's pure peppermint oil. You've got to do this. Oh. Go in and see if you can get some from a chocolate shop. I don't even... What, what, what is peppermint oil? It's peppermint it's, oil. It's extract of peppermint. You'd be able to get it from a naturopath. The oil of peppermint. Like oh. Yeah. Oh, thanks, mate. That's great. That's actually helpful. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> oh, sorry. Didn't mean to hang up on you. Hi. What's your uh, solution for Jeff's hangover? <laughs> Makes me sound like I'm some <laughs> hopeless alcoholic. Hello, hi, hi. You're you're on air. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. Oh, loving, have you got... loving the show. Oh, thank thanks, you. mate. Uh, two minute noodles. Oh yeah. All right. Grated lemon rind. Okay. Oh. And a couple of shakes of cayenne pepper. And you can chuck the little chicken sachet in if you want, but the cayenne pepper will open up the pores in your nose and you'll be sniffing all day and you won't even think about your headache. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this sounded like a witch's brew. I was like, this is an awesome Makes me feel vaguely sick even thinking about it. (laughs) Oh, thanks, mate. That is a good solution. Perfect. No problem. Thank you. Have a good one. See ya. Enjoy. Oh, that's so good. It's some genuinely helpful. Yes, is, like although now that you think about it, it's not surprising perhaps that our listeners would be somewhat expert on this subject. Experts in being, what are you saying about our listeners, Jeff? Well, <laughs> I more. think it's quite clear what I'm saying. <laughs> These are coming through thick and fast. Okay, fingers crossed. Hello, how are you going? Hey, going? I've got a queue up for the hangover. Yes, oh. what is it? It's really simple. It's a can of Coke. Oh, oh. nothing like the sugar and the caffeine. Mm-hmm. It's the double that's hit. It. That's and it gets rid of the nausea, you've got the energy, and technically it's natural. Oh, it technically <laughs> is natural. I don't know how oh, it's technically natural. natural. Oh, well, I mean, cyanide's natural too, but, oh, you know. Oh, it's, yeah. I see what you mean. It is natural. Can of Coke. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, can of Coke. Done. Easy. Thanks, mate. Yeah. That's a good one. I like it. Done. Classic. Oh. It's a classic. A can of Coke's a classic, I reckon. Miso soup. Someone says full of vitamin B and K. Vitamin B. That's why I told you to get Vegemite on toast for the vitamin B. <laughs> have you cool. eaten this morning other than the, that did, purple water did you get that you're sa- Oh, my God. Did you get a sausage roll at 7-Eleven <laughs> on your way to work? <laughs> no, no. I didn't. Oh, did. No, I, I did eat a little bit, yeah. What, what did you, you have for breakfast? You have I had some, some rice. Tuna and brown rice. Tuna and rice. Oh, yes. You're still doing that? Yeah. Oh, you're very committed. Mm. That's sustained energy. Gets you through the show. Oh, these are all good hangover cures. Thanks, yeah. guys. Yeah. Do, you need, do you feel like you need any more? Well, if anyone's got any more, I'd be happy to listen to them. Bushy has said running might cure the hangover as well. Someone said to sick it up. They also said it might empty the body, so maybe a run and bomb. Oh, Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, thanks for that. Do you know what I like to do with with the hangover? It's just um, lie lie on the couch and watch, watch a movie. Watch a fun movie, like a dance movie. That is my go-to oh, dance movie. One which has got a narrative arc that's predictable. Mm. I like yeah. that. Well, and why are you hungover? Because I um, am a responsible oh. drinker. <laughs> I I lots were... of glasses of water. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. 
You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The Arsonist, A Mind on Fire is a new book out through Penguin. Its author is Chloe Hooper. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hello. Nice to be here. Uh, you published your previous book of non-fiction, The Tall Man, back in 2008. The Black Saturday bushfires happened the following year. When and how did you start thinking about that as a subject for your next book? Well, I was um, instantly... Um, sort of horrified, I suppose, to learn that a number of the fires on Black Saturday had been deliberately lit. And um, I sort of immediately asked, as I think lots of people do, what, you know, what would what would make somebody do that? Who becomes an arsonist and why? And it wasn't for another five years that I seriously started to look at it. But, um, uh, you know, one's ignorance tends to then fill a book. Mm. It's an extraordinary book and your description of what that fire was like is utterly compelling. I mean, some of the best writing I've read for a long time. Can you give people a sense of what it's like to experience a bushfire? For me, that was very shocking. That sort of, you know, we hear Australians, we hear about fire, but that sense of what it was actually like was really quite something. Well, thank you. I mean, actually, I had some extraordinary um, witness statements to draw from. So uh, in a way, I sort of aggregated them to together because uh you know you need to actually have a sense of what you know a seemingly sort of what, what what a couple of flames from a lighter can actually do and i mean it's it's horrifying so one thing that i didn't realize was the 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 noise that the fire generated people described uh jumbo jets landing on their roof or sort of uh, a thousand freight trains going past so just the volume of of the flames as they came in their direction the sky turning dark um suddenly you know it was black and then it was red um that you couldn't breathe so it felt like you were sucking on a hairdryer uh, people's you know wearing goggles they melted on their face so it's just such a it was such an intense experience to to survive that firefront you focus on specifically the fire that happened in Churchill, which was written, which was uh, lit by a man named is it Brendan Sokolok. So- Sokolok. Sokolok. Okay, and uh, the, you do a really beautiful job of, um, I guess, drawing out who he really is. He lived a fairly horrific life. He was a man that had um, learning difficulties. You describe him listening to Bob the Builder, for example, when he was you know doing his job. He had this real simple mind, and in doing this and kind of painting this really horrific life that he led, you, you make him quite a sympathetic character in a way that we hadn't seen in the media uh, when it was first reported that he'd, he'd lit the fire. But you're also at the same time meeting with these victims of, of what he'd done, who'd been through these horrific events. How did you kind of resolve yourself to be able to write both those stories? And did you ever kind of feel like guilty in painting him sympathetically or in telling his, his true story? This is something that I struggle with, you know, still. And, um, um, you know, I've had people who feel very, very angry about um, um, this de- depiction of him. I, I describe him as, a, as, as childlike, and, and that's the description that his, his lawyers had of him. And, and somebody said to me, you know, you, you make him seem sweet. And I, I don't mean, you know... I guess I, I said to them, I don't think of children as being sweet because I've, <laughs> I've, I've got two of them. I mean, you know, children actually can also be incredibly cunning yeah. and and not understand their actions. And I think that there's, you know, to, to I think to um, to understand this story properly, you do need to be able to look at it from his point of view as well. And that is in no way to excuse the horror that this fire unleashed. And um, 
I think, you know, uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, because I had uh, his permission and his family's permission to tell his story, I, I really, it, it, you know, I needed to um, show him with, with the dimensions that he does have. He was sympathetic and he was also... Um, you know, really unsympathetic and 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 had fiendish quality qualities. So, um, you know, that's a fine balancing act. As much as the book is about Sokolok, it's also in some ways a biography of the Latrobe Valley. And you paint it as a place that's already damaged long before the fires. Can you talk a little bit about that? The background that I suppose helped create him and also created this community. Well, I suppose um, the Latrobe Valley drove Victoria for many, many years and um, uh, Brendan's parents moved to the valley hoping that it would give their sons a better future. Um, Of course, you know, the SEC was privatised in the mid-90s and thousands of people lost their jobs and and billions of dollars of profit sort of uh, moved moved away from the valley. Um, It's now... Even in the 10 years since the fire, obviously Hazelwood's closed and so have various other industries. I mean, you know, one of them being the timber mill because of because of deliberately lit fires and the plantation ah. timber has sort of um, uh, wasn't there. And, um, you know, that's actually like a rust belt has, has formed there in real time. And it's, uh, you know, it's a place which um, a lot of fantastic people are there and, and there are also, you know, terrible... Uh, crime and health statistics. There's a huge amount of yeah, disadvantage, I suppose, in, in the Latrobe Valley. Did you feel like coming away from this experience that they're being failed, that we're failing those communities in some way? I felt really, I felt really dumb for not knowing, I guess, about the level of disadvantage that exists so kind of close to the inner city. Yes, it's only two hours away. Yeah. Do you, did you kind of come away from this thinking we something needs to change or that we're failing these communities in some way? Well, look, I mean, I, I think that, you know, um, stories about crime actually end up being often about disadvantage and dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we are living in a time where uh, our planet's warming up. There are... Um, more people who feel disenfranchised, who might be about to, you know, who who might consider expressing themselves through lighting a fire. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things we need to to change, and energy policy, um, you know, the way we we kind of light our houses, and and of course coal. You know, this is this is our coal country in the Latrobe Valley. There, there's there's many things I think we need to sort of rethink. You were working on this book for a long time, as I guess we've alluded to. Sokolok is quite a nebulous figure in a way. He's not a supervillain that maybe some people expected him to be. How and when did you decide that the story was finished, that you'd, you'd come up with a narrative arc that makes it work as a book as a whole? Because it is a very compelling piece of writing. And I guess I'm kind of curious about the, about the art that goes into taking all of this material gathered after such a long period of time and with such a strange figure at the centre of it and turning that into a narrative that reads almost like a novel? Ah, the hardest question. Um, (laughs) 
Well, Jeff, I guess I um, initially I was given approval by Victoria Police to speak to the arson squad, and so I spent a lot of time um, with those detectives and um, you know the arson chemists. They're, I mean, it's pretty fascinating to me that thirty thousand hectares can burn, and they can uh, trace their way back through the fire to to you know um, sort of a couple of areas of three square meters. But that's a digression. And then it took a long time to actually also um, persuade. Wade Legal Aid to, uh, to, to give interviews and, um, and I suppose once that happened I knew that, you know, I, I had kind of, um, um, the you know, the dimensions of this and of course also through Victoria Police I spoke to, to um, and became close to somebody who'd, who'd lost two children in this fire so, um, you know, that also really brings home the reality of the damage that, that that it did. Did you get a greater understanding of, I mean, the whole kind of, I guess, idea in some ways that's being dealt with in this book is also what, why people are, are arsons, why people light fires deliberately. And it was really interesting reading Australia's history with, with arson uh, and the fact that this kind of goes back to almost, you know, when we first colonised Australia, we had lots of arsons as well. Did you get an, like an in, insight into that at all? Well, I think that you know arson is a, an Australian speciality, partly because our our trees are just designed to to burn, mm. um, and in, Indigenous Australians had incredibly sophisticated fire regimes, which which actually controlled these feral fires from from um, being so catastrophic. But uh, I guess white settlers understood the power of ignition. They, um, you know, cleared land to cultivate, but they really didn't sort of get the nuances. And um, certainly, you know, back in colonial times, the uh, there were characters called hatters who were sort of, um, in a way, precursors to Brendan. You know, they were called hatters because they were sort of considered mad as hatters, and and that the threat to um, landholders was that they might come and light a fire if if they weren't sort of you know given a meal or, or um, you know uh, somehow placated. Yeah, I, I was struck by how different your telling of the story was to the journalism that we had at the time. And I was wondering, in some ways it goes back to my previous question, how you think about the kind of writing that you do. You're also a novelist. You bring the skills of a novelist and a distinctly literary sensibility to your writing. What does that those set of skills allow you to do that perhaps a more conventional reporter wouldn't be able to do? Look, I don't want to duck that, but you know, it's really hard. Sometimes it's just instinctual. You know, you're you're not you're not really conscious of what you're. You know, you're just sort of um, making a lot of sort of decisions on the on the run, which are, you know are, are you know sentence by sentence. Um, but you know, I guess that the the media initially have a quick sweep, and that's um, you know a nonfiction does allow you to go go in deeper um, and and maybe tell you know I, I got to to sort of um, dig down and and spend more time with with characters and indeed meet them and and you know I guess that changes the um, you know the the, the vision. You also say that of you make the point that of the 173 people who died that day, which is an extraordinary number, 161 of them died as a result of failings of the electrical infrastructure, so power companies trying to make profit. Why don't you think we hold them as accountable as we do a single man? 
That's really interesting. Um, I guess that they're sort of, you know, the, the we, we don't know the... Um, you know the the board of directors, and that it's kind of faceless, isn't it? And yeah. and yet we, you know, I, I think we have this idea that it's a natural disaster, a power line falling down, and yet actually it's just sort of corporate negligence. And and as you say, um, you know, we there's um, you could question the wisdom of handing over our electricity provision to to companies who are just trying to make profit. Mm. Well, yes, just following on from that, as you said before, we're in an era of climate change. We know the bushfires are going to become more intense and more deadly. After all of your time working in this area, what conclusions do you draw from that? What should we be doing that we're not doing? I mean, I suppose apart from <laughs> trying to stop climate change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, I mean, yeah that, that, that would be good. But, you know, in the absence of that, that ever seeming to happen, um, I guess we... Uh, we educate kids that, um, you know, mucking around with matches uh, isn't, um, you know, it's it's really potentially fatal. I think there's been a sort of, we've had a, we haven't really treated arson seriously. Um, I think that this fire has changed that. Um, and I think, you know, we... we you know, these are the big things. You know, we don't sort of cope well too with those in our midst who are, um, you know, make us uncomfortable or different. And and this was a man who was um, very isolated and and he had um, serious grievances. The book is The Arsonist, A Mind on Fire. It's out now through Penguin. We've been talking to its author, Chloe Hooper. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. That's right, Triple R is we are. You're tuned to The Breakfast with Jeff Geraldine and Sam filling in for Sarah. As many listeners will know, the situation of the kids on the route is reaching a crisis point. To tell us all about it, we're joined by child psychiatrist Dr Julie Stone, who has been consulting with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Welcome to Breakfasters. Really nice to be here. Thanks, Jeff. The Australian Medical Association president recently said the situation on the route is now a humanitarian emergency requiring urgent intervention. What is he referring to? Um, talks about that I think with the the emotional and the physical health of all refugee and asylum seekers on Nauru I think has been at crisis point for some time. Those working closely with the community are deeply concerned about um, well about all members of the family really. I mean as a child psychiatrist I have been particularly focused on the well-being of the children but we know that the well-being of any family member affects all and the things that we are seeing, the numbers that we are seeing of uh, the sense of hopelessness, the sense of despair as well as the kind of physical um, symptoms in the children is really alarming the, it's certainly at crisis point and I think the need for specialist uh, assessment, treatment and intervention is urgent. Okay, so who is still at Nauru and what do we know about the condition that they're in? Um, I spoke with the team at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre yesterday. We think that there are 50 uh, minors still on Nauru. Uh, certainly of the ones that my uh, colleagues are in contact with. Many of them are hopelessness, uh, the sense of hopelessness around them. They are Many of them are actively suicidal. 
Many of the young children are very withdrawn, um, certainly in both um, in primary age children and in secondary age kids. We're seeing kids who are no longer interested in engaging with those around them, who are restricting or refusing food and uh, fluid. Um, all the things that you want to see in healthy children and families aren't happening. There's no play, there's no talking, there's no curiosity. Uh, things that are really alarming to a child psychiatrist. Some of those children were born on Nauru or spent their entire lives there. Five years is a very long time in a child's life. Um, and the levels of distress are really high. Um, does that answer your question? I mean, that, yeah. Or do you want... I mean, no, no, look, I... I mean, it's difficult even to talk about these subjects, but I, I feel we need to press on. I mean, some I have heard some people saying that they think there's a real risk that um, a child will die there soon. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that we are... Um, and, you know, this is in no way to um, um, denigrate what uh, services and the people are, that are, are trying to do there, but they're not enough... They're not specialist enough, and I think that the treatment that I certainly that I hear about has not been adequate to meet the need. Um, I mean, I was asked to to go and consult with this team because they were very concerned about the high level of risk that they were hearing about and felt that they were carrying. Um, and often they would bring to discuss, you know, the cases we talk about the children and the cases that they were talking with me about. I did little to um, decrease their concern. In many of you know, many times, I told them that I felt that we should be more concerned, um, and there was a sense of of them being. Um, you know, when when you carry lots, you kind of lose sight of because often I would also say we also need to think about the normal developmental perspective here. You know, that's this is not how we should be expecting four year olds to behave. Mm. You know, this is not mm. this is not um, how a, a young child flourishes. I mean, they know that, but there's a kind of sense of like when everybody you speak to is in the same boat, you actually lose sight of what's necessary for health and well being in young in young. People. Is and there sorry, any hmm. sort of um, what's the kind of the education system over there? Is there anything? Are they going to school and things like that, Geraldine? No, they're not going to school, and that, of course, that was deeply shocking for me that they're not. I mean, the Nauru school is open to them, but certainly the stories that I hear is that the children do not feel safe there. Yeah. You know, so they aren't going. Um, the as you um, know, or many many of our listeners will know, that Save the Children had a school there, and the, what I heard was that they were um, loved by the children. It was a place that was safe for the refugee children to go, and that often when there was any unrest in, within the community, the children would run to the school. The teachers wore red t-shirts, I'm told, and they would cling on to the red shirts as they were. Mm. So there was a sense of that happening. But now I think it's to do with um, 
not feeling safe, feeling bullied, not mm. finding it hard to get there. And also, of course, I mean, we see school refusal often when kids think, what's the point when there's a kind of sense of hopelessness? Yeah. And, you know, in families, things are well. The parents hold the hope when the kids haven't got it and say, you will be going to school. Yeah, no, you don't want to, but, you know, that's what will be happening. But, of course, that's not happening in these families either because that sense of despair is endemic. So, no, they're not going to school. There are no really safe or... Um, nourishing places to play um and was there any kind of plan set up like five years ago was there surely you can look back on this and and think this was inevitable Mm. yes (laughs) the Mm. end (laughs) so and and, and i i often think as well um there's there's got to be trauma that's that they're experiencing and that trauma surely will stay with them even if they are resettled and i often think about refugees being resettled and and how they're going to be affected sam i think that there is no doubt that the environment the not knowing the longing to be somewhere else the longing to be together the longing for um the normal things of life you know that was deeply shocking for me when i realized that all the things that loving parents can do for their kids there these parents do not have that opportunity Mm. Or very limited opportunity. So I think the trauma is cumulative. You know, Mm. lots of people um, have said, why now? Well, I think that the increasing time... And I think with every family, with the group of families that were, did leave um, Nauru to resettle in America... All those goodbyes, that was for many, the people who left behind that was lots of losses. It wasn't that they weren't pleased that their friends and people that they had, the community members were going, but they wanted to go too. Those left behind felt, you know, why us? And, you know, the families that have moved in recent times, each time someone goes, there's both, you know, that there's a, there is another loss. And I think that's the trauma too. And little kids saying, you know, why us or why not us? And I think, I think, I think the cumulative trauma, the effects will be there. I mean, lots of people ask me, you know, will they ever get over it? And I think that as a child psychiatrist, I think that with good intervention, that of course we can improve function and optimise things. And that, But the effects of trauma are never erased. We know that from all the, you know, the situations that we've had in our, in, 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 in our history. We know that. But what we hope is, and I think it's going to take a long time, and I hope that Australia can be generous and compassionate enough to give these children and families what they need to heal and and find the kind of creativity and meaning in life that is what all of us want. It is ironic that this week we had the government apology for institutional child Indeed abuse, it is. which Scott mm. Morrison said, today we say we are sorry, sorry you're not protected, that you are not listened to for refusing to trust the words of children for not believing you. It's, um, I well, mean, so- uh, as we've heard, sorry means stop doing it, but we haven't stopped doing it. Have no, we? no, we haven't stopped doing it. And I think um, I had coffee with a friend of mine, Lily Chin, um, tweeted, hypocrisy, thy name is Morrison. Because I think to talk about that in Parliament while what we know is happening on Nauru was... I mean, hey, I'm a child psychiatrist, I'm not a politician, but I thought it was outrageous and very, very sad that we are so limited in our vision and also I think, you know, Julia Banks uh, Banks talks today about the children are citizens of the world, the children on Nauru 
the children of the world are our collective responsibility and the children on Nauru are in our remit to do something about. Yes. Uh, just very, very quickly, because we're running out of time, do you think we, are, we have reached a, a, a tipping point now? There does seem to be a sudden focus on this? I hope so, and I hope all the children will be... all their children and their families will be off Nauru very, very soon. We've been talking to child psychiatrist Dr Julie Stone, and if people are concerned about this, there is a rally for refugees this Saturday at 2pm at the State Library. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Ah, you're tuned to Breakfasters. It's time for... You didn't play the theme oh, music, Sam. <laughs> I keep forgetting Come on, we changed studios and everything for this. <laughs> Friday, funny burger. <laughs> I'm just really into singing all the theme songs today. <laughs> it's time to welcome back... Nat Harris. Hi, guys. How are you going? Back. Hi, Nat. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. Yes. After Again. your week yeah, of being I know. here. Jeff, that's my seat. <laughs> oh, room. did you get the, the, the corner, corner seat? seat? Yeah, I did. A little well, space over there. Yeah, is that a special seat? It is a special seat. I'll fight you for it. <laughs> the divas and the team sit over there. <laughs> I just accumulate, like, all the dishes from the kitchen in that corner. No, I didn't. You put them back. And put them in the dishwasher. Like Thank a responsible you. Well yes, like Are you all recovered from your week? Yes, I am. I really enjoyed it. Oh, great stuff. Yeah, so thanks for having me and thanks for having me back. Um, so I, I, I mentioned this before to you guys, but I work in a cafe mm-hmm. uh, in North Fitzroy, and which means that, you know, I have lots of short encounters, you know, for hours on yeah. end. And um, people say things, don't they? Oh. That <laughs> people have been known to say things on off the press. People say things and, you know, they imply things quite strongly and mm. then they leave, mm-hmm. you know, and it can leave you wondering, oh, what was that? Or you can really read the subtext. Like the most obvious example people might say to me is, oh, big week. Okay, oh. you know what I mean. Okay, oh, which so you obvious... look tired. Exactly. Mm. Yes, and then there's kind of the more cryptic, like, oh, I, I can imagine you'd like arts and crafts. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or to, yeah. Or to the more like straight, like really obscure. I remember once a woman told me that I could do Renee Zellweger impersonations. Wait, what? Renee Zellweger, you know that? Yes. Yeah. 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 I could do Renee well, Renee's out with impersonations, but only with sunglasses on. Okay. Yeah. Can't so, decide whether mean? that's a compliment or an insult. I don't even know where to begin <laughs> to start unpacking that. So you look like her, but only with sunglasses. Maybe. You, yeah. You can't do. An, can you do an impersonation? No. Oh, okay. I cannot at all. Like, and I'm not sure that that would be really something people are after. Yeah. Renee no. Zellweger with sunglasses. Yes. But to be fair, that her wasn't said to me. Her main features are her eyes, though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I'm not sure. I don't I, even know. Maybe your impersonation could consist of you being on stage with the sunglasses on. So saying I'm, it. I'm Renee Zellweger. I'm taking them taking off. Them no, I'm not. See what people say. You're a genius. <laughs> to be fair, though, that wasn't in the cafe. That was um, on a bus in LA. So maybe it's more about the context okay. for that yeah. one. And was that 
prompted by anything? No. <laughs> just, no, just not at all. To it's just something that still stays with me, though. <laughs> what was, so it? Some, was it a compliment? Yeah. Someone what? just turned around and said to you. Yeah. Jeez. What was I your know? response? I can't. I'm like, really? I think it was just shock, similar you should have said to what, that you were, we're all, what we're all experiencing now. You should have pretended you were Renee Zellweger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think I could. I am Renee Zellweger taking the bus. <laughs> um, but so with this in mind, I thought we could play a game, mm-hmm. okay? And the game is... Um, what are you implying? That's what it's called. Ah, <laughs> okay. Amazing. okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to deliver a statement to say you, Sam, mm-hmm. and then Jeff and Geraldine, you jump in and go, what am I implying? Okay. Now, the things that are important in this game is it's um, it's I encourage you to jump to conclusions, yep. okay, not to think too much about it, and remember that I'm being the voice of, say, like your nosy neighbour mm. or an auntie you see okay. three times a year, mm-hmm. okay? All right. So Fine. Love it. I'm going to kick it off with the first one. This is to you, Sam. Um, So you're getting out of the shower. Okay, maybe it's not your auntie. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it is. Or maybe it's your auntie. I'm not sure. Who am I to judge? That's right, no judgment. Okay, maybe you and your auntie have a very close bond. Um, You're on holiday, no. Um, You're getting out of the shower and your housemate says, that was quick. What are they implying? That you're dirty and you need to shower more. Yes. Ah. Okay. Also, why is my auntie my housemate as well? Yes. <laughs> well, that's for you to answer, Sam. Don't drag me into this. <laughs> okay, yeah. So dirty, get back in the shower. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's a funnel thing. Okay, that's true. I will accept that. That's or one point to Geraldine. Jeff, what, what, any other suggestions? Sorted sexual habits. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I'll give Jeff two points for that. He's really getting into the spirit of the game. Yeah. No voice of reason here. Well done. Yeah. I know. I, what about taking advantage of the lack of water restrictions? Yeah. Ah, ecologically minded. You know, yes, I was going to say it could double as a compliment. Because water restrictions were such a fierce thing for a while, so yeah. now yes. they're kind of lifted, so it's kind of like, get back in the shower, enjoy yeah, yourself. Yeah, come on, yeah, get in there. Yeah. They're complimenting you being conscientious. Exactly. Yes, I would also maybe, I also would have accepted the fact that them saying, oh, that was quick, implies that they have been interrupted. Maybe oh. they wanted to snoop through your phone or um, read your diary. Yeah. Oh, and you caught them in the act. Exactly. I also Try would have accepted that. Yes. That would have got three points. There's a lot of happening in this oh, house. Okay. There is, isn't it? I mean, he's right, like, I and this is all with now. his auntie. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's a house of horrors. Unbelievable. Okay, this one's to you, Geraldine. Great. It's Wednesday at 2pm and you pass your neighbour in the street. They say, oh, got the day off, have you? <laughs> Lucky you. Mm. Mm. What is the neighbour implying? Can't get a job, lazy bum. Yes, I actually have lazy bum written here, <laughs> Jeff. Well done. Another two points to Jeff, everybody. <laughs> Insert some sort of joke about a comedian not having a real job. Yes. I'm not making the joke, but someone potentially would. And I think the key bit here, and I don't know why, but is lucky you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. The insinuation being us hard working oh, types never get days. Lucky you, Geraldine. Uh, Do you get that, though, with breakfast radio? People, your neighbours or anyone. I suppose every, most people would know what you do. Oh, no, people... Don't. Oh. Did you find no. them curious about your hours that you keep? Well, I 
can jump in here and say because yeah, like, I work in the office here okay. and Geraldine pretty much every so day. So you've got a job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. You, Sam. <laughs> no, for some. Almost every day when I set up for work it's, at ten a.m. It's every Friday. Yeah. Or every Friday, yeah. Geraldine comes over to my desk and she says, "Ah." Oh, Oh, you're just starting work now, eh? <laughs> oh, interesting. Because oh. oh, I'm going home for a sleep. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, and I flipped him the bird. <laughs> so I walked backwards. So I, I very much relate to this hypothetical. See you, losers. <laughs> Early bird catches in the nap <laughs> at 10 a.m. And you'd think that joke would get old, but no. no it no, doesn't. It just Not gets at better. all. It's like the smugness of someone getting up to do yoga at 6.30. <laughs> What's the three-pointer answer on that? Oh, on I'm the... not sure. Oh, the three-pointer. Yeah. Um, I also would have accepted um, it implies that you're just shopping online and watching clips on YouTube. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But Correct. sometimes... It's quite probably true. <laughs> sometimes I'm not sure what a three-point answer is. Yeah. Sometimes I just hear it and go, oh, oh yes. That's the three-pointer. Three <laughs> so, everyone, Jeff's in the lead. Um, but here's a chance for you to recoup because this is um, for Jeff, this oh. one. Um, ah, okay. So, ah... So you're a Gemini, Jeff. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, oh. I hate that. I hate yeah. it so much. I okay. never know what these mean, but this I always imp- think it's something bad. It yeah. implies that he has an evil twin yeah. that they carry buckets of water around. Absolutely. And it is very likely to tip a bucket of water on somebody's head. <laughs> now that's a three-point answer. Yes. It's the details. Yeah. The devil's in the details. Yeah, well done. Yep. Thank you. That's good. Also Great game. B- yeah, thank you. <laughs> Great game. So that's a tie. I'm pretty sure that comes in at four. Four. Oh yeah, it's two. I didn't do very well. No, <laughs> I you didn't even really answer well. the last one. <laughs> no, you got a you got a one two pointer. No, we'll give you two points. Thanks, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Thank you. Oh wow. Great game. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to start doing this to people. All day long. Please do. Yeah. 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 Nat Harris. What are, what are you implying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.